I want to thank you guys for coming out on a, a beautiful summer night. So thank you for coming out. We are going to be digging deeper through this. Let's go ahead and advance the slides so that we have the text in front of us. So just like normal here, um, I want to know what are some thoughts, applications, um, something you identified, some realizations, maybe some applications that, that you had that you would like to share, maybe some observations. We really camped in the first two verses this morning, um, and we're going to now unpack verses three and four, which is, truth be told, an unpacking of the first two. So what are some observations, thoughts, things that, that stood out from uh, the text this morning? Just anyone at all? Raise it. Okay, we have right here Greg. We'll start with them. We got Don, Sam, we got, oh, do you already have someone? We got Don Vogan right over here. Vogan is now his new name. Vogan. All right. Yes. Okay. An observation that I made was that when you mentioned, and the scripture mentions, when we are dead to sin, there is a phrase also that is dead in sin. Yeah. Three words, one word in the middle is so different and with, makes such a different meaning. Dead in sin is our spiritual death, that we are born in sin, and we have a spiritual death until we are saved through the grace of Christ. Amen. Um, dead to sin means that we are no longer a slavery to the sin. We are still sinful, inherently sinful, but because we have been saved through the grace of Christ, any sin that we commit, his grace is greater mm -hmm. and cancels out the sin that we commit. Mm -hmm. um, I just found it interesting that so many times you read in the scripture those three little words, but you don't really pay attention to the difference in the two. Yeah. And so one is totally opposite from the other. Amen. Excellent. Thank you for that. Very true. Amen. Uh, what did I call you? Vogan. Nod Vogan. You're up. There. A couple of thoughts come to my mind. One is, you know, when I go to the Lord each day and confess my sin, oftentimes I feel like, Lord, it's me again. And the list looks a lot like it did, it did yesterday. And am I making any progress in this. And, you know, I'm also, as we, as we go forward into the next couple of chapters of Roman, it, Romans, it's clear to me that th this teaching today was under, Paul was under divine inspiration. Mm -hmm. Because in chapter 7, he talks about, oh, wretched man that I am. Mm -hmm. Because the things that I know I should do, I don't. And the things that I know I shouldn't do, I do. And he calls it a war going on inside of him. Yeah. And <clears throat> so, you know, the teaching here is very clear, but I also, my personal frustration is the war because sometimes I win a battle, sometimes I don't. And that's the hard part. But I'm under grace mm -hmm. all the time. Yeah. Amen. Thank you, Don. Anyone else? Observations, thoughts? applications. Just raise your hand and we'll run. We have Emily right here. Anyone after Emily so we can at least run the mic to you? Anyone at all? 
All right, be thinking. Okay, go ahead, Emily. Okay, uh, so I'm on, yeah. So uh, I think when we're up closer, okay. Oh, it's scary. <laughs> we're unaware of what we're unaware of, that uh, we can be quite arrogant and think, sure, I got my fire insurance. I'm saved, I'm good, because he's faithful. And as you said, of course, there's truth. He's faithful. However, the whole concept of coming to the Lord in faith and accepting him is to recognize his authority and how he's made a great provision for us. So if we think we're in control, we've learned his rules, and we're going to have it go our way, we're going to manipulate rules and him. We are fooling ourselves. My grandfather I never met had a saying of, you fool of me, you fool of yourself. Okay? Uh, so I, I think that there's a huge danger of just taking the surface of the plan of salvation without recognizing the relationship to an almighty God. Amen. Thank you, Emily. Someone else, observations, applications, anything that stood out to you? We got Paul over here. So Sam, anyone after Paul, real quick, before we go to him? Okay, please be thinking because I have technically no notes for this evening and you are the message, all right? Joke. <laughs> My goodness. Paul, go ahead. It's a hard crowd, yeah. It is a hard crowd tonight. Well, I appreciated that diagram toward the end where you had the, the three circles. That yeah. was really helpful, very clear. And, you know, I'm not sure I grew up with that. I think I grew up with, uh, yeah, this person is not saved. This person is a carnal Christian, but they're, they're saved, but they're far away from the Lord, and they have been for years. And then this person is living for the Lord. You know? And I think I was maybe taught wrong about that. Yeah, um, me too. And so I think one of the struggles we have, there, many of us have got maybe family members or friends that are just, we thought they were believers way back in the day, but they sure are not living for him. And then, I mean, for years, decades. And so in reality, they likely are not saved. And I think that helped clarify things. Thank you for that. No, it helped me. And I learned it from someone much wiser than me to piggyback on Emily and you. I was... I was raised in conservative Baptist churches, of which I'm very grateful for and have a huge debt to the heritage and teaching that I had there. But one of the things that were shortfallen is, if I were to um, cross-pollinate your, both your answers, is I was taught that salvation was a formula, not a relationship. A, a prayer, not repentance. And, um, and I'm forever thankful for professors and teachers in my life that showed me that the gospel um, is taught throughout the New Testament, not in just selected verses. And so that was very, very precious to me. So thank you, Paul. Anyone else? Observations? Applications? Anyone else? Anyone else? Okie dokie. Okay, we're going to walk through this tonight. I have just a few pages of notes here. And then rather than me reading this out loud again with, with some color commentary, we're just going to finish with some, some applications, okay? So um, let's take a look at this, and uh, 
we'll go through it. Let's open in a word of prayer. And uh, ask the Lord to guard my heart. Gracious Father, thank you for this text. There's a lot here. Father, I pray that I would teach what, what is here and not what I want to say, but what you are saying. We love you. We ask that your Holy Spirit be our teacher today. It's in your name we pray. We ask that you would renew our minds through your word. Amen. Okay, first thing we're going to look at is the phrase here, what shall we say then? All right. Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? Now, the first thing I want you to see here is what Paul is doing here. And you see it up there. Paul anticipates objections from both sides of a singular issue. Oh, that will preach right there. First of all, I need to know, is everyone awake today? Can I get, if I were to say God is good, you say, okay, I am about to be rather vulnerable with you uh, tonight for about five minutes worth. Then I'll, I'll put my veneer back on, all right, and no one will ever penetrate it again, all right? But I'm going to be vulnerable, I'm going to be raw with you, and um, I want you to uh, allow me to just go through this a little bit. Paul anticipates objections from both sides of a singular issue. Paul will be accused, now he's in Corinth, he's writing Rome, he has very legalistic Jews in the church, and he has very libertines, or uh, libertines, libertarians, if you will, in the church through the Gentiles. And as he writes this, he knows he's going to get objections from both sides of the issue. He will be accused by the legalists that he is trying to erase the law. You know, when sin abounds, sin grows, grace grows even more, abounds even more, it hyper grows. And he will, at the same time, while being attacked by the legalist, will be accused from behind by the libertarian of trying to promote the law too much. I want to pause here for a moment because this text opens a window of practical application here. All right. It opens Now, this is probably a point I would not teach on a Sunday morning. This is a Sunday evening crowd, um, and I mean this in love, but it's you guys are the cream of the crop, if you will. Everyone else, no, I'm just teasing, but, but you're here for a reason, and I probably would not touch on this in a morning service because I want to identify that it is a secondary application, but it, I think it is a fair and consistent one at the same time that I want to touch on because if I could be honest with you, if I could speak for the multitudes of pastors that I am in fellowship with, even within our association, it is crushing the heart of every pastor in ministry today. All right? I want to give you a peek into Paul's life, especially the human side of Paul, if you will. And in some ways, a pastor's life, my life, my friend's lives, my mentor's um, throughout the country that I call. And to be honest with you, I'm going to throw this in here, a pastor's wife life, my wife's life, who at any moment in time, no matter what they do, can be attacked from both sides of a singular issue. And mother, many other pastors will talk about this as well. Paul will have to fend off two objections from totally different positions on a singular subject, both claiming Scripture as their moral high ground of why Paul is wrong. Now, to be clear, Paul is talking about a core doctrine here. He is talking about grace, salvation, justification. 
But he is also dealing, all right, but if he is dealing with a core doctrine, how much more does an elder, how much more does a pastor, in this case, how much more does an apostle deal with it on secondary doctrinal issues or, or preferential or discernible issues? Again, the subject here is salvation, but the application can go just about any subject or doctrine that a pastor must teach on from the Bible. So I want to pause here for just a moment and share my heart. I'm not going to be honest with you. I'm going to be transparent with you. And frankly, I'm going to be a little raw with you. And I'm going to do so that maybe others can benefit from it. Maybe there's people who are watching online from other churches that need to hear this as well. And I need to hear it as well. Before I move any further, I need a pen or I'm not going to be able to think. Anyone at all? I'm OCD. I need a pen. And that's a pencil. And preferably a clicking pen. Thank you very much. Now we're firing, all right? (laughs) What's that? No, it's unacceptable. In fact, it's morally wrong, all right? Now, I hesitated to share this with you. I sat down with my wife and I said, should I share this with you? Is Amy in here? Amy, Amy, Amy? Amy? In the back. And sin. In the back. All right. <laughs> I said to Amy, I said, should I share this? And she said, not only should you, you better or don't come home. I sat down with Pastor Dave, Pastor Jory. I called a couple elders. I said, am I sharing from God's word or am I sharing from me? And they said, no, go you need to share this. I called some of my mentors, one of, one of my pastor friends, Todd, who's just south of Columbus, Ohio. I said, am I, am I missing this here? He said, not only are you not, but I need you to say that because I'm going through the same thing here. So I want you to hear my heart in this. But I want to start by, start, uh, by doing an exercise, and I want you to give me some answers here. So get your brain ready, okay? By raising your hand, I'll call on you. I want you to imagine one subject in the Bible that the church, and in the church, that people have strong differing positions on. I know, pray tell, what could it possibly be, all right? But what are some subjects or doctrines in the church that people may have differing positions on? So here's my answer. Give me some subjects that may have strong positions on both sides of what the Bible teaches and probably discernibly allows. What are some subjects? Anyone at all? You're going to give them to me. I, I, uh, 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 Laura, what do you got? Well, I know baptism. Okay, baptism. And times. I have end times nailed down, all right? And when I get up there, the Lord's going to ask me to kind of just give a refresher course for everyone. No, I'm teasing. Don, what do you have? Consuming, that's actually in my notes. Consuming alcohol. What are some others? Mike. Uh, a divorced man running for a deacon's board. Okay. Divorce, remarriage, church leadership. Okay. Um, is that Ozzy? Ozzy, what do you got, my friend? Yes. Okay. Back to end times. All right. Um, yes, sir. Communion. Communion. Yes. Any others? I see. Uh, Ryan. Eternal security. Yes. Budget. Budget. Yeah. Budget. The real doctrine of the church. Yes. All right. I saw a hand over here. Worship styles. Worship styles. Yeah. Uh, Mark. Music. Worship styles. Laura's got two. What do you got, Laura? Spiritual gifts. Uh, Paul. Women in the ministry. Women in the ministry. Yes. Now, 
You hear all those subjects, and some of you may say, I strongly object to some of these even being brought up. You're proving a point, okay? And no matter how careful you teach from God's Word, you can be attacked, whether it's on a core issue, like Paul is here, or a secondary issue, which is a greater to the lesser argument in the church. Here's where I'm going to be a little bit transparent with you. And I'm going to do it through what I would say a lighthearted example, but I mean it seriously. Every week when I get up to speak, now I'm going to pull, how many here remember computers in the 1990s? Do you guys remember computers in the 1990s? Monitors, just under 800 pounds, all right? Keyboards where you had to strengthen your fingers to use. How many here remember the mouses? Anyone at all? Okay, good, you're with me. Every week when I get up to speak, I feel like in some ways I stand in front of a giant spiritual game of church mind sweep. How many here remember the game mind sweep? Anyone at all? What was the goal of mind sweep? Talk to me. To not blow up. So you tentatively had to start by doing what? Click on one square and, and pray to God that was not a bomb. And then it would have a number next to that bomb, and it would let you know how many spaces around that had a bomb by it. And you better not, you got to figure out where that bomb is at, because if that bomb is clicked, not only does that, that spot blow up, but what happens to that one spot? What else blows up? Everything else that is touched by a bomb. Sometimes when you get up every week, it's like a spiritual game of mind sweep. Years of countless and passive or aggressive demands gathered over the years, expectations, positions, discernments, that if not, not met and you touch on it, or worse, not touch on it, you set off a bomb of discontent and stress. And by the way, it's not just an isolated bomb, but it will affect those who agree with, disagree with, and are neutral to the issue. Then comes the demands. The moment you say this, I will leave the church. The moment you do that, I will call for a meeting. That is the kryptonite of pastors. Can I get a witness to you on that thing? Okay, no witness. Thank you. The moment you touch on the subject, it will be our last Sunday. And that is before you go to social media and people talk about you publicly. Now multiply this by many subjects that you brought up Now times it by multiple positions on individual subjects. Now multiply that by hundreds of people and you see an exhausting game of mind sweep with thousands of individual variant convictions, positions, and demands that if a pastor touches on, teaches on, does not affirm or or does affirm and touches on any of them, boom! Paul's about to get that. Paul's getting that. Many years ago, Vic, you're the first person I met at Trinity. Actually, it was you, but we met at Sandy Pines. Remember that? You came up and said, you ought to come to our church. We're, we're horrible. And I said, thank you. No, remember we met there. But Vic was the first guy I um, shook hands with. He was a deacon at our church. And Vic, you'll, you'll remember this years and years ago. Many, many years ago in the same service, I spoke about, who said alcohol? Anyone? You. I spoke about alcohol. Be not drunk with wine. Do not be deceived by a strong drink. And whoever is is deceived, therefore, is not wise. So, 
be not drunk with wine. We taught what the scriptures said. Afterwards, I received two aggressive comments, really threats at the door, where I was shaking hands. Same subject, straight from God's word. One said, I was demonizing those who like to have a social drink with friends, and I was being a legalist, and I was in sinful error. Sinful error. The other came and said, I did not forbid all alcohol, therefore, ready for this, I was promoting alcoholism. Promoting alcoholism. Vic, do you remember this at all? Years back? And was on a slippery slope. Notice how quickly moral failure was attached to any position that did not echo their position. Moral failure was attached to everything. Both, both men, by the way, threatened to leave the church due to the moral failure on one subject in both directions. By the way, one did leave the church, and they wrote a very aggressive letter, not to me, but to guess who? The deacons. And in that letter, they said they could no longer sit under such a sinful person like me. The other stayed for a while under the extreme threat that I better never touch on it again. Why do I tell you this? Why do I tell you this? Because being a pastor is very difficult, very vulnerable place to live. He has to teach. I want you to imagine this for a moment. Paul did this. By the way, Paul did it perfectly. Paul was inspired. We'll touch on that in a moment. Imagine how much harder it is not being inspired by the Holy Spirit. All right. He has to teach from one book, a pastor does, on multiple doctrines that are intricately woven together, written thousands of years ago in a different culture that you've never been in, in an ancient language, to hundreds of people who interpret it through their desires and traditions and comfort levels, who then will go home and evaluate how the pastor did his job that they themselves would never want. And that is before you counsel, administrate, visit, set vision, direction, manage finances, do conflict resolutions, try to meet everyone's varying expectations, and your family should reflect what each individual family thinks it ought to be, and then lovingly tell you how wonderful it is to only work one day a week. Which, by the way, before my violin gets too loud, almost everything that I just brought up, Paul had to fend off in the New Testament. Just about everything that I brought up, Paul had to fend off in the New Testament. Those who thought he was trying to get rich off of teaching the gospel and on and on. Paul was accused of these. So what is Paul to do in this situation? What is Paul to do? What is, by the way, a, a, a under-shepherd to do, an elder to do? The subject here is salvation, but it can be applied to many subjects and doctrines within the Word of God. And in these next verses, Paul tells us what to do. He says this, Paul will neither abandon God's grace to accommodate the legalist, nor will he abandon God's righteousness to accommodate the libertarian. He will teach what the Holy Spirit has instructed. Here it is, not more than and not less than. That is the balance beam, the razor's edge, if I could, that you walk. This is God's answer to the church of Minesweep that pastors stand in front of every moment of their life. Teach the words of the Holy Spirit clearly and equally to all positions. And this must be my goal as well. 
I have to stand before the Lord one day, and I will not give an account on whether I met everyone's expectations, but rather if I stayed consistent to what God's Word, here it is, now hear this, what God's Word clearly says. Here's my commitment to you. I give every one of you my promise on this. It'll be my desire never to lie to you if I make a decision or teach God's word in a way that does not meet your personal positions or desires. I will tell you the truth. I will own it. And here it is. I'll be willing to be changed. And I will even submit to the elders. But a shepherd can never be pushed into what the word of God does not say. Does not say. Not less and not more. In humility, I want to make something clear. Unlike Paul's teaching, I am very capable of error. I'm very capable of messing it up. I am not above mistakes, and I'm certainly not above failure. And it is not wrong to disagree with me. I want you to hear that. In fact, in elders' meetings, a lot of times when I feel like we're kind of echoing each other, I'll say to the men, I don't want to hear from anyone who already agrees with this. I want to hear from those who do not. I want to hear contrary opinions, positions, and convictions. I want to hear from a different point of view. I want to hear from someone who disagrees. I invite this from the elders, and then I submit to them, even if I don't always see it exactly the way they do. But in those moments, there are healthy ways to disagree. Let us seek out together, absent from threat, Absent from threat. What God's word clearly says, says, not a defense of what we want it to. Now as we move back to the text here, Paul sets up the, object, the objections of verses 1 and 2 and he unpacks it in verses 3 and 4. Remember this morning, Paul says that there's no such thing as a Christian who uses the grace of God as a vehicle and a means to live habitually and purposely in sin. In fact, he has no words for such an application of God's grace We talked about this morning, the major application this morning is this, is which sinner can be saved? Well, the answer is all of them. All sinners can be saved. But which sinner can continue to embrace sin habitually while claiming Christ? And the answer is none. All of us who are in Christ fail in life. And in those moments, the grace of Jesus, Paul, you brought this up, um, and others, the grace of Jesus not only meets our sin, but it floods our world. However, those who habitually embrace sin as a lifestyle while claiming Christ are lying and give evidence, not that God's grace can't cover those sins, but that the grace of God has never been given to them. 1 John 1, 7. So in summary, the question is this. Can salvation truly exist from sanctification? Can salvation truly exist from zero evidence of growth in Christ? Can a person receive new life in Christ and continue to live their old way habitually? Paul gives a clear answer in this, and he says, far from it. Far from it. May it never be. God forbid. It is abhorrent. In fact, Paul knows that they know this. He knows that they know this. Hence the words, he says, do you not know? Now, this is not a genuine question, by the way, a genuine question. It is, it is a slightly sarcastic response, a way of saying, come on, you know this. We've talked about this. You know, you know in your culture what baptism means. You know what this doctrine is talking about. 
The Jewish recipients knew very well that all who have been baptized into Christ have been baptized into his death. Kenneth Wiest, an old-time Lutheran who gets it so well. I, I love, I don't know, he is such a wonderful teacher and then he spirals off on, on some subjects, but I love what he says here on this. He gives a great definition of baptism. Baptism is the placing of a person into a new environment where it permanently alters the relationship with the previous environment. Places itself in a new environment which completely alters the old environment and vice versa. Now let me be clear. Water baptism is not what saves us. What Paul is telling us here is this. Upon salvation, of placing our faith and repenting of our sins, we are baptized in Christ through the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, here it is. Remember the shift in relationship here, all right? And, and environment. The Holy Spirit permanently alters your relationship with sin and death, no longer a slave to it, into a permanent union with Christ in his righteousness, a slave to Christ. We no longer have the same relationship with sin and death. No longer have the same relationship with sin and death. Hence the words, we are baptized into his death. When Jesus died to, to sin and conquered its power, we who believe in him die to sin and its power. All right? Not that we can't be stung by sin. We talked about that. Not that we can't fail, lose our tempers, or, or all the all other things as well in a moment of personal failure, but that we no longer live under its power. That's what baptism symbolizes, an outward baptism in water. That we are separating ourselves from our old life, where sin was our master, and here it is, we come up and we walk in the newness of life. We go down, we die to ourselves, we come up alive in Christ. That happens inwardly in our hearts upon salvation, and it is publicly symbolized when we get baptized as well. Where Christ is our Lord, it is, it is an outward identification of an inward reality. I talked about this morning how Martin Luther wrote in his journal that when he was tempted of sin, he would say, get away from me, I'm baptized. Meaning I'm no longer in a slave relationship with you. I have permanently broken up with, with my marriage to sin and death, and I am now married to Christ in life. In fact, Galatians chapter 3, verse 27 says this really super clear. All of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Now in closing, rather than me reading a passage again, like I do, I want to end with just a few encouragements here. And I, I got these from a lecture that I read a couple weeks ago. And I want to share them with you. I don't know if, you know if you're anything like me, the concept of being dead to sin rather than dead in sin. The concept of being dead to sin and alive to Christ it can be difficult to comprehend and apply. Especially when, Don, you brought it up, you go before the Lord and you confess those sins and say, it looks a lot like the last time I was here. So let's include by giving three applications that are based out of this text. Number one, do not presume upon God's grace as permission to sin. Do not presume upon God's grace as permission to sin. 
in the lecture, Professor Cole says this, many Christians stupidly, and then he writes in his parentheses, I chose that word deliberately, who stupidly think I can go ahead and sin and just be forgiven. After all, I am under an ocean of grace. My friends, sin does not move in to help you achieve your objections. It moves in to reign over you. Sin grows. It tangles and it enslaves. God's grace does not mean He is tolerant of your sin. Grace does not excuse sloppy living. God is committed to my holiness. He's committed to your holiness. And by the way, now grab this because this is going to bring in the rest of the New Testament. If we choose to play loose with sin because of our relationship with grace, if we choose to play loose with it, God who loves you will discipline you. Perhaps severely. Make sure that we do not presume upon God's grace. The second one here, and there's only three. If you have trusted Christ, make a distinct break from your past life and declare it publicly in baptism. Make a break from what you have been delivered from. Becoming a Christian means burning all your bridges from your past life of sin. Destroy it. Burn the bridge. If you were addicted to drugs before Christ, get them out of your position, possession. Destroy them. If you struggled with alcohol, don't engage with it. All right? And on the list could go over and over again. If you are tempted with those things, pour it down the drain. If you like going to bars and tempted with drunkenness or lusting after women, stop going there. If you struggle with pornography, get rid of it. Get accountability. Get people in your lives that that can come alongside you and say, I'm going to help you in this new permanent relationship with Christ that has been delivered from the old one. Remember the believers in Acts chapter 19, verses 19? Where when they placed their faith faith in Christ in Ephesus... They burned 50,000 days' worth of wages of the mystic books. They got rid of them. They said, we want nothing to do with the old way of life. And then confess your new faith in water baptism. Did you know it was absolutely inconceivable in the New Testament for someone to profess faith in Christ and not immediately get baptized? (laughs) Wasn't even a wasn't even something that was on the radar. Paul never even addressed it. The idea that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to accept the Lord here and then wait 20 years. Now, I, I'm not saying that in a condemnation. I'm saying, you know, let's look at God's Word and how that worked. Hmm. Confess your new faith in water baptism. Why in the world would we ever wait to publicly symbolize the inward reality in our lives. Last one is this. Meditate often on your union with Christ and what it means. You are in Christ now. Think about it and act accordingly. You no longer have to live under its power. Martin Lloyd-Jones, I was reading his book a couple weeks ago, he gives an illustration of we no longer have to live under its power, no longer slave to it. He gave an example that in our current culture and situation, I almost feel hesitant to give, but he gives the illustration 
of when slaves were freed in the 1800s. He said many slaves were, all, that's all they ever knew. And when their master said something, they jumped. They jumped. It was law. They had no, no option. And then came the emancipation. And they were freed from slavery. They no longer had to obey their master. But that doesn't mean when the master came down the road and he said, you know, Brett, get going on that, that there wasn't this, this tendency to go, oh my goodness, I, I have to obey him. Sure, that, that tendency could be baked into us, but we are no longer obligated to. We're no longer under it. We're no longer a slave to it. We're a slave to Christ. You don't have to obey your old master. You've been raised up in Christ so that you can now walk in newness of life. Think often of your new position in Him. Our union with Christ and His death and resurrection is the foundation for separation from sin and walking in newness of life. Gracious Heavenly Father, dismiss us with your blessing. Thank you for your word. Thank you for Paul's faithful commitment to what it says. Not more, not less. Thank you for this church, Father. Bless them. Father, may I serve them. And it's in your precious name I pray. Amen. You guys are dismissed. Feel free to use this time to fellowship with one another. Thank you.